0: Good morning, y'all. It's good to see you this morning. I want to thank Nathan and our whole worship group. Um, there's something about I mean that last song. I I I grew up singing that song, of course that's a different version, but like like Nathan said in that prayer, the idea that we're singing along with angels. I mean that that hymn was written based on Revelation, and what John saw in the throne room of heaven is the angelic choir saints holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So we're not just going through motions here. We're not just keeping a couple of worship leaders employed. We're actually participating in something that has happened since before time began. And that, already, that already just knock us to our knees and make us realize how blessed we are. We can do that for free. We're not, we're not oppressed in any way. We can come into God's house and, and, and sing. And I just thank God there's nobody who's sitting in front of me because I don't sing all that well. But I get to sing. And, and like a friend of mine used to say, if I can't sing well, at least I sing loud. So I hope you all enjoyed that with me this morning. Uh, would you all join me right now in uh, Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. We are continuing our series on heaven, um, and if you haven't heard any of this series yet, it is on our website, you can watch a video of the ser- of each sermon, or you can listen to a podcast, you can subscribe to that on your smartphone if you want, and you'll get one every week. Here's the thing, hopefully by now if you've been listening to this series, you've gotten excited about the world to come. We have something to look forward to. The, the heaven that we look forward to is better than anything you can imagine, Although it is enough like this world that you can't imagine it. You can't picture yourself there. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, it's too good for us to envision. Because the word of God tells us details about it. To, that Paul talks about it in like Colossians 3. Set your mind there. So God wouldn't command you to think about heaven if he didn't give you the tools to do that for. Hopefully you have gotten excited about heaven, hopefully you you are excited about the world to come. But I I just want to tell you, this message is going to be a little different. It's not going to be as happy, it's not going to be as hopeful, because we're talking about a question that we we can't avoid, and that is, what about people who aren't believers in Jesus? We've already seen He is the one who takes us there. What about people who don't know Him? What about people who don't believe in Him? And that's a question that has bothered me since I was a little kid. I, I grew up in church. I've basically been in church every Sunday of my life. Got saved when I was nine. But even then, even as a little boy, I was wondering, well, what about little boys and girls who don't grow up in a home like I did, where their parents tell them about Christ and where they get taken to church? What happens to them? When I was in college, I went to work for uh, my college's orientation team. So during the summer, when prospective new students would come in, we would guide them and their parents around. We would take them on tours of the campus. We would we would take them to the different meetings they had to attend and register for classes. And it was a fun job. I really enjoyed it. Did it two years in a row. And and one time we had a lot of downtime in this job. So in between sessions, we would just sit around and and hang out together. And, And at one point. One of my co-workers was talking. She had grown up in a Christian home. But now that she was an adult, like a lot of folks, they get to their adulthood and they start to question what they were raised with. And that's that's the period she was going through. She was questioning the beliefs she had been taught. And she was telling us about a conversation she had with her roommate. Her roommate was an a devout Christian. church-going person, a fervent believer. they have been talking, well, what happens to people who aren't Christians? How, how, how do they get to heaven and roommate said, well, they don't. I mean, if you're not a Christian, you don't go to heaven. And my friend said, well, that's just not right, because there's lots of really good people who aren't Christians. And the roommate said, well, I don't disagree with you. There are, but uh, still, you have to be a Christian to get in heaven. And the, so my co-worker said, well, what about Gandhi? I mean, there's nobody you can name who lived a better life, who was more selfless, who was more courageous. Are you telling me that he's not in heaven today? And the roommate said, no, he was a Hindu. He's not a Christian. He didn't go to heaven. And so my friend is telling this story to all of us in, in our little group, and she says the following. She says, Well, if, any religion that says that a man like Gandhi can't go to heaven is not a religion I want to be a part of. Now, I'm sitting there. I'm 19 years old. I've grown up in church. I'm a, I'm a devout believer. I'm a serious uh, follower of Christ. And yet, I didn't know what to say. In fact, I kept silent through that whole conversation, and I was really glad that someone changed the subject. And what should I have said? How do we answer questions like that? Because missiologists will tell you one-third of the population of the world doesn't even know about Jesus, much less believe in him. At least 4 billion people on earth don't identify themselves as Christians, and of those who do, how many really know him? If you ask an average American, what is your religious affiliation, there's a 1 in 5 chance today that the average American citizen will say, I don't have a religion, I have no religious preference, my preference is none. Um, So we are living in a time when more and more people don't believe in Christ. What happens to them? And I know, I know most of us here would say, yeah, I'm worried about that, but I'm specifically worried about my brother, or my cousin, or my child, or my grandchild, or my mom, or my dad, or my, my best friend, or my co-worker. Those are people who, I mean, I don't know any of those people in other countries, but I know this person, and as far as I know, they don't know Jesus. What's going to happen to them? Those are the things that hit us at the heart. So what does the Bible say? What do we get from Scripture about people who don't know Jesus and the afterlife? There are people who try to solve this problem by saying, well, we know there's not really a literal hell. I mean, I know it's in the Bible, but that's a very ancient superstition. That's that's an obsolete belief. The problem with that is, if you think that way, you're disagreeing with Jesus. Jesus clearly believed in a literal hell. He spoke about it 15 different times in the Gospels. The word he usually used was a Greek word, Gehenna. At least that's the word the Gospel writers used to translate it. Gehenna is a reference to a valley just outside Jerusalem. I've actually been there. It's called the Valley of Gehenna. And it's right outside the city, right outside the city walls. In Old Testament times, it's where the pagans did their child sacrifices. And then in Jesus' time, it became the town of Dona. So in Jesus' time, anybody in Jerusalem could have walked right outside the city gate and had seen this massive area with acres and acres of garbage, of rotting corpses, of animals, and fires that never went out. Just imagine a place where the smoke continually rises, where the smell is continually terrible, and Jesus compared that place to where you go if you don't go to heaven. He wasn't saying it's literally that He's saying, that's the only thing I can compare it to. It's, it's Jesus' way of saying, if you choose not to go to the place I've prepared for you, then the place you go, there is no comfort there. There is no joy there. There is nothing pleasant there at all. There's no good alternative to the plan I have for your life. That's what Jesus is saying. And i got to be honest with you. That bothers me. In fact, if that doesn't bother you, I'm worried about it. If you think, oh yeah, that's good news, hey, there's hell, hooray, then you've got problems. That should bother you. But it didn't bother the Jews. You know, it it seems to me, it seems to me that this disbelief in hell that a lot of Christians have today, And when I said it should bother you, I don't mean disbelieving. I mean the people who deal with the problem of hell by saying, well, it doesn't exist. The problem with that is, number one, Jesus clearly believed in literal hell. Number two, you notice in the scriptures, none of God's people ever said, you know, Lord, it's not fair that everybody doesn't go to heaven. None of God's people, and by the way, the Bible is exceptionally honest. You see, you read questions in the Psalms, and the book of Job, and places like that, that you and I would be afraid to say out loud, and yet these people are saying them to God, and yet nobody anywhere in the scriptures, none of God's people ever stopped and said, Lord, you know, if you were really just, you'd let everybody go to heaven. Because they understood evil. They understood evil better than you and I. do. They experienced oppression that most of us have never experienced. In fact, I've, I've kind of decided the idea that there is no hell is sort of a peculiar belief that's only held by people who are particularly prosperous. People who never really suffered. People who never really experienced injustice. See, if you and I were members of a church, a Catholic church in Egypt, and we'd just been bombed, by radicals, we believe in a literal hell. If we, were, if we were part of the church in Nigeria that's the most oppressed church on the face of the earth right now, the most persecuted church on earth right now, I guarantee you every one of those Christians believes in a literal hell. And if you were a person who was one of the many, sad to say, I hate to bring this up, but sad to say, if you were one of the many people who grew up in church and was abused by someone in that church, a, a clergyman, even, you'd believe in a place of eternal justice. You believe, the person who did this to me got away with it in this life, but I know God has got my back. God is going to bring justice for me. And it's only people like me, people who have skated through life relatively unscathed, who have the luxury of saying, oh yeah, there's no justice after this life. God just just sort of writes it off. But even us, even even we so-called sophisticated Americans who think we're so compassionate and tender-hearted, even we have limits. Let me ask you just for instance, what do you think happened to the terrorists on 9 11 who hijacked those planes and flew them into the Twin Towers? You think as soon as they died, they were welcomed into paradise? I would question a God who would respond that way. That's not the teachings of Scripture. You and I know, we know there has to be justice, we know there has to be punishment for evil. I like why, out of of the book, I've never actually read this book, but I, I read the quote. Uh, and it's about a a woman who's who's disbelieving in religion, and she says, I don't go in for all this emphasis on sin, suffering, and judgment. If I had a God, I'd like him to be intelligent, cheerful, and amusing. And her friend that she's talking to, who's Jewish, says, well, I doubt you'd rather find a God like that much of a comfort when they herded you into a gas chamber. you probably at that point prefer a God of vengeance. And she's right. See, there's another solution people say. Okay, I I get that there's a hell, but it's only for bad people. Yeah, I believe in a literal hell, but it's only for the really, really bad people, the terrorists, the child molesters, the people like that. The good people go to heaven. But who gets to decide who's good and bad? And on what standard, is that decision made? Or other will say, well, you know, as long as you're religious, as long as you believe in God, as long as you're sincere, doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere in those beliefs, and you don't really interfere with someone else's life, then everything all basically ends up in the same place. But Jesus didn't believe that either. There's the story we read earlier this year, and some of you know, about Nicodemus coming to Jesus. This is in John 3. And here's a guy who you and I would look at and say, now that is a holy person this is a guy who knew the Torah backwards and forwards. Who was in a synagogue every time the doors were open. He was so respected he was known as one of the leaders of Israel, religiously speaking. And not only that, he was a sincerely good person. Because you and I know you can be very religious and not be any good. This guy was a good person too. He followed, he, he came to Jesus in the middle of the night. He really wanted to know who Jesus was. Later on, when the other religious leaders are attacking uh, Jesus, Nicodemus stands up for Jesus. That's in John 7. And then in John 19, we read that after Jesus died, Nicodemus was one of the two people who came forward and claimed his body. So a good person. And he walks up to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, well, you go to church a lot, and you're pretty good, so you're alright. No, he looks at him and he says, Nicodemus, you're not good enough. You have to be born again. You have to become a different person if you want to get into my kingdom. See, Jesus says none of us is good. If good people go, then none of us goes. If good people go, then we're all lost. Jesus would say in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? Jesus was either right about that or he was nuts he was right about that, then there's only one way, and that's through Jesus. And then in Acts 4.12, this is after Jesus has ascended into heaven, his disciples are preaching and they say, there is some salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. There's no other way. That's very exclusive. So what did Jesus teach about people who don't know him? Let's go ahead and read our scripture, and you're going to hear this and think, okay, what an odd scripture on this subject, but I'll explain why in just a moment. Luke 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you not. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So kind of an unusual story, but what's going on here is A bunch of people corner Jesus and start asking him questions about current events. Now, we do this today. We sit and talk about the news, don't we? In fact, some of us will sit and watch, for hours on end, shows where all they do is sit around and talk about current events. I'm not just talking about the news. I'm talking about shows where they analyze, and they get three different experts, and they sit and they talk. OK, what do you think the president meant? OK, what do you think the Democrats are up to? Well, what do you think the Senate's going to do? And they argue, and they shout, and they fuss, and they fight. And we, we think that's great. Well, That's what they're doing with Jesus. They're saying, okay, Jesus, why don't you weigh weigh in on this? See, there were these Galileans, and this should be of interest to you because you're from Galilee, and they came to our city a couple weeks ago, and they just came to offer sacrifices. They're just doing what God wants them to do. And here comes Pilate. We know how much he hates the Jews. He comes and he murders them while they're offering their sacrifices. Now, does that mean, Jesus, that, that God hates those Galileans, that they did something wrong and God was judging them? Notice at the beginning of the passage it says, now there were some present at that time. Why does Luke call attention to the particular time? Because if you go back to what Jesus has just been talking about in the previous chapter, he's been talking about judgment. He's been talking about the end of the world. He's been talking about what we talked about last week, the second coming and the day of judgment. And so I think, I think what they're doing is they're trying to take some of the heat off themselves. Wow, Jesus just told us we're all going to have to stand in judgment before the Father. Well, wait a second. Speaking of judgment, Lord, how about those Galileans? What do you think about them? Don't you think they got judged by God? Because that was the theology of the time. Something bad happens to you. It's because God is judging you. What is Jesus' (laughs) response? He says, that's none of your business. It's none of your business what happened to those Galileans. It's none of your business how God feels about them. By the way, Jesus was God. Could he have given them an answer? Could he have said, let me explain to you boys what was up going on with those Galileans and why? Yes, he could have. But instead, he says, it's none of their concern. You better tend to your own soul. You better repent of your own sins. You better get the log out of your eye before you go about plucking the speck out of your own. And then he says, and by the way, I know about that tower that fell in Solomon the other day. Crushed 18 people. Terrible tragedy. That's not your problem either. You better get right. You better repent. So what is Jesus saying? And what are we to do with people who are unbelievers? Basically, anybody you know, whether, whether it's somebody on the other side of the planet or a loved one of ours. What is our mindset toward them to be based on the scriptures? There are three things I want to share with you today. Number one, it's not our job to decide anyone's eternal faith. It's not our job. It's not in our pay grade. We don't know. We don't get to make that call. And I tell you that because, again, I've been in church my whole life. And I've had lots of conversations with my friends about, hey, do you think this person is saved? And my, my best friend, he said this the other day. He goes to that church. Do you think he's really saved? Hey, there's that, that celebrity on TV who claims to be a Christian but she did this the other day. Do you think she can really be saved? She was in that movie where she played that part Do you think she's really saved. Hey, those people that go to that church down the street, I know they're, they have a cross on their church, on their steeple but I know they, they believe these things that are kind of funky as far as we're concerned, so can they really go to heaven when they die or do they have to become good Baptists like us? We used to have those conversations all the time, and I bet you do too. And I've decided, based on the scripture, that that's a waste of time. And in fact, it's worse than a waste of time. I think it's dishonoring to God to have these conversations. Because number one, we don't know. Number two, that's not what we're called to do. You never, please hear me, you never see Jesus or any of his disciples sitting around and having those kinds of discussions. In that, and also, there's nowhere in the Bible where there's a list of criteria you can use to say, okay, is the president really a Christian or not? Is, is this celebrity really a Christian? Do people who go to that church, can they get into heaven? There's nowhere in Scripture where we can judge completely someone else's eternal fate. So just, just so I can prove this to you, let's play a little game, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a brief description of three real people and I want you, not verbally, I'm trying to start any fights here, but I want you in your mind to ask yourself the question, based on the information I'm given. is this person saved or not, all right? So three people, you ready? First person, a former president of our country, who was probably one of our greatest presidents, very personally courageous, made a huge difference in the state of our nation, knew scripture and quoted it more often than any other president I can think of, but never joined any church or made any public profession of faith that we know. Is he saved? Second person. Famous clergy. All of you have heard of him. He changed the world for good in a very profound way, but he held a lot of beliefs that would make it impossible for him to teach a class in one of our churches. I mean, his beliefs were so different than mine. I would not let him teach one of our Sunday school classes, our life classes. Is he in heaven? Third question. Or third person. Here's a guy who was a political and religious leader. He wrote religious literature that is being read to this day that has impacted millions of people, helped them get to know God better. But... Secretly, he got the wife of a colleague pregnant and then had that colleague murdered to cover up his crime. Is that person saved? Is that person in heaven today? Well, I don't know if Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther and King David are in heaven today, but I wouldn't bet against any one of them. See, you can't know. It's impossible to know unless God tells you. It's not our job to determine anybody to determine anyone's eternal faith. And by the way, People who grew up in very, very, uh, let's say, hellfire and damnation backgrounds, right, where you heard some serious, preacher, you know, where your preacher gave off some serious sweat while he preached, the yelling and the screaming and the, and the scaring you into heaven, and, and you've been taught that's the way it is to be, and you're, you're like, well, wait a second, Jeff, aren't we supposed to pre- aren't we supposed to preach judgment on the lost? I mean, how is somebody going to get saved if they're not scared of hell? And I would say to you. With all due respect, because I think most of the time those people's motives are pure, I never see that happening in the scriptures either. Think about it. The Old Testament prophets, aside from John, they preached to the people of God, they didn't preach to the pagans. Jesus was surrounded by Romans. Every street corner, there was a Roman soldier there, the occupying force. He didn't walk up and criticize and condemn them and say, how dare you, serve an oppressive regime. But he had harsh words for his own people. He had harsh words for the people who should have known better. Paul, the apostle who came from a Pharisee background who who probably had uh, more backbone than any human being who's ever lived. And, he didn't, and, and then after he was saved, spent most of his adult life in the Greek and Roman world where they practiced a morality and a, and a philosophy of religion that was hateful to him. I mean, the cities Paul visited would have made Las Vegas look like a Sunday school convention, right? And yet Paul didn't stand outside the Roman bathhouses and criticize the people going in and out and saying, you're all going to burn. He, When he stood on the hill uh, on Mars Hill in Athens, and he's standing there in the cultural center of Greco-Roman thought, and he doesn't stand before all those philosophers and say, you're just a bunch of idol-worshippers and perverts," even though they were, according to the word of God. Amen. Instead, he says, let's talk about what you and I have in common. You're very worshipful, you're seeking God, but well, let me tell you about the God you're seeking. See, what I read scripture Scripture that Paul says, I am all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul did not waste time being angry at non-Christians for acting like non-Christians. Paul didn't waste his time or breath neither did Jesus or any of the Apostles worrying about why godless people act like there's no God. They're acting the way their beliefs tell them to act. Instead, he was quick to criticize his own and say, you know better. I, I, know, I know sometimes you may think that I just am angry at Christians all the time. I'm really not. I love being around God's people. It's, it's one of my joys. But I think that one of the callings of a Christian minister is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And so if I don't criticize God's people, I'm not doing my job. But on the other hand, if I'm railing, sitting here in this pulpit on a Sunday morning, railing against the godlessness of the outside world, what good does that do? Except make us feel better about ourselves. We're not here to preach judgment upon the lost. We're here to reach them. and We'll get into that in just a moment. It's not our job to decide anyone's eternal faith. Secondly, we can trust God with the souls of others. We can trust Him with this question. We don't know who goes to heaven and who doesn't, but we can trust God with the souls of others. There's almost no information in Scripture about, I realized this a few years ago, and it it blew me away, and you're going to realize this too if you read the Bible through in 2019 like we're challenging you to. There's all these characters you read about, yet hardly any of them could we know what happened to them in eternity. It just doesn't say. In fact, the only only person we know got to get wrecked, promise of heaven in Scripture is the thief on the cross. Jesus said today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say that to Peter or Paul. He didn't say that uh, to Moses or Elijah. He said it to the thief on the cross. And it's like God is saying, hey, you're worried about what happened to all the Old Testament saints? Don't worry about that. I got that. I'm good. See, the Bible's got plenty of information so you can know you're going to heaven, so you can have assurance. It just doesn't tell you how to know if somebody else is. We can trust God with that. We can trust him with that information. And to get on to a more serious question, an even more personal question, we have a similar dilemma when it comes to children who die, to babies who are miscarried, to small children who died at an early age. We wonder what happens to them. And, And some Christians will talk about, well, there's an age of accountability. Well, where is that in the Bible? I don't actually find that in scripture. And that's a genuinely important question. So here's what we have. We know know that God loves little children. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. He said, you have to have a heart of a child to get into the kingdom of God. We know that God loves little children. We know that God is fair and just. Therefore, by faith, we can trust that he's going to do what is right and what is fair. We know he'll do the right thing. And that way, as a Christian, I have the assurance if I lose a child at an early age, I'm going to see that child again. And you do too. But let me just say this. God's love and fairness are true for all of you, not just little children. I'm not saying everybody goes to heaven because that's clearly not the case in Scripture, but it does mean that we can trust Him in every situation to do what is fair, to do what is just. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone but as the Lord God so turn and live. See, regardless of what you've seen and heard from religious people in the past, God is not excited over anybody missing out on, on the new earth, on the resurrection, on the world to come. That sorrows him more deeply than you could possibly know. 2 Peter 3.9 says, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And we know this because of the cross, because you know what happened at the cross? At the cross, God in the form of a man named Jesus, said to the whole wide world, if you choose not to come into the eternity, I have planned for you. If you choose not to spend eternity enjoying my love and my grace, that's your decision, but if you choose it, you'll have to go over my dead body. Because I'm dying to make it possible for everybody." You can choose to spend eternity apart from me, but only over my dead body. Now, if that's true, if it's true that God loves every single person that much, don't you think we can trust Him with questions like, well, what about people who never hear? Don't you think we can trust Him with questions like, well, what about people who are mentally disabled and they don't have the capacity to understand? Don't you think we can trust that God's going to do the fair and the just thing? Here's what, here's what I believe I believe that on Judgment Day, no one is going to have a case against God. No one's going to be able to step back and say, where's my lawyer? I don't think I was treated fairly. Everyone will know that God did what was right. God did what was just. And we will rejoice. You see what God has done. Now, up till now, you may be under the impression that what I'm saying is just take care of your own soul and don't worry about anybody else. That is not what I'm saying. And that's the third point. Our job is to bring as many people to Jesus as possible. Our job is not to answer these questions, although it's fine to question. It's good to talk it out and to study, but that's not our job. We don't have to know all the answers. Our job is to bring as many people with us as possible. Jesus didn't tell us how to determine anyone else's faith, but he did leave us a very specific message, and we know this. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the Great Commission says, go into all the world, Make the disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It always, it always sort of cracks me up when non-Christians say, hey, you have the right to believe anything you want to, just don't try to tell me about your beliefs. That's my only problem. If Christians would just keep it to themselves, and I have to say, then I don't have the right to follow Christ. If I can't follow him in this, I'm not following Jesus if I don't try to tell you about it. That is our job. I love Jim Dennison was asking the question years ago what about people who never hear about Jesus? What happens to them? And here's his response The Bible doesn't equip us to solve that problem with our theology, but we're called to solve it with our witness. So if you're worried about this, if this bothers you, how much money are you giving to world missions? If this bothers you, How often do you pray for specific lost people you know? How often are you praying for a revival in the Muslim world, for instance? How often are you praying for the explosion of Christianity that's happening right now in China, South America, and Sub-Saharan Africa that just continue? How often are you sharing your faith with people you know right here? See, that's where all that mental energy should go. We can't solve this problem with our theology because God doesn't give us the information. He says, just trust me on that. But he does tell us, Hey, go share what you have. Are you doing that? And then in the same column, Denison makes a statement. I haven't checked his math on this, but he says if every Christian brought one person to Christ per year, and that person did the same, the whole world would be saved in 34 years. Think about that. Just one person a year. That's not too much to ask. So let me bring us back to where we started. Think about our loved ones whose eternal faith you're not sure of. They don't seem to know Christ. They don't seem to be following Him. Maybe they've made religious commitments in the past, but that doesn't seem to be relevant to their lives anymore. Maybe you know they're not a believer. Think about them and think about how deeply you want to see their lives change for good. Now think about this. Think, imagine that some stranger you don't even know showed up in that loved one's life and managed through a life of such integrity and such intentionality and such authenticity to impress your loved one so much that they began to become friends with this person who was a Christian, who prayed for them, who loved them sincerely. And imagine your loved one came to Christ and was born again. Now imagine your loved one coming to you and saying, hey, here's my friend. Here's the one who led me to salvation. How would you feel toward that person? How grateful would you be Now think about this. Every single person you know, every person you come to contact with is somebody's somebody. Somebody cares about that person. If they're a religious person, they're praying for them. If they're not, they're saying, boy, I sure hope somebody will help them because I can't. And more importantly, every person you meet is a is an infinitely loved child of God who he crafted carefully in his mother's womb for a specific purpose, who he died for on the cross, who he waits patiently for like the father of the prodigal, hoping, praying that his lost child will come home. That's that person. That's the person who rides the bus with you. That's the person who cuts your hair. That's the, the father of the kid in your kid's class that plays soccer with him. That's, that's every person you know. God looks on them with infinite love and sorrow until they come home. And ask yourself the question, if on the day of judgment you stand before God, saved totally by His grace, and He looks down on you and says, you know, I was watching when you Loved that person, that child of mine, who was so difficult and so so determined to run away from me, and you loved them with all your heart. And you did everything you could. You prayed for them, you showed them a the difference, you had discussions with them, you did everything you could to bring them home to me. And I just want to tell you thank you. Think about your judgment day and how that will feel. That's what we are here to do. We're here to love God's lost children. And as far as we're able to bring them home. And if this question doesn't inspire you to do more toward that end, then pray for God to change your heart. Because there is no more important responsibility we have.